Welcome everyone to this week's edition of Fair Territory. As always, we've got a lot to talk about. The hot stove is finally starting to percolate. And I say percolate as opposed to a full boil because this is baseball. It's not the NFL, the NHL, the NBA. We'll get to that later in the show. But what I want to talk about to start off today are teams under pressure. And one of the teams I had listed among five that we're going to discuss in this show was the St. Louis Cardinals. Well, as we sit here taping on Monday morning, the Cardinals are under less pressure than they were 24 hours ago because they are finalizing a deal with Sonny Gray. It might be final by the time you see this. Three years, $75 million. Sonny Gray added to the Cardinals' rotation on top of Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn, the two pitchers they had signed in free agency earlier. The Cardinals went into the offseason knowing they needed at least two starting pitchers, probably three. I would suggest, this is not going to happen, but I would suggest it, that they still could use another one and maybe trade for another one. It might be a smart thing to do. Sonny Gray is a guy who attended Vanderbilt and wanted to get back closer to Tennessee where he lives. St. Louis was a possibility, obviously. Cincinnati was another one. Atlanta, all of those teams fit him geographically. And now he gets to a place where he really wants to go. Sonny Gray, second in the American League Cy Young voting to Garrett Cole last season. 2.89 ERA in 184 innings. Very good ERA, obviously. First time since 2019 he did not go on the injured list. It was his most innings pitched since 2015. So let's take a look at the Cardinals rotation now that they have added Sonny Gray to Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn and Miles Michaelis and Steven Matz. That is a pretty formidable group. That's a pretty good group. Veterans all. And at the same time, it's an interesting approach that they're taking. The three guys that they've signed, all 34 years of age and older, all proven workhorses, guys who pitched a lot of innings last year. And I want to show you right now where the top four starters of the Cardinals stand as far as their ages and respective inning totals from last season. Here they are. Miles Michaelis, 35 years old, 201 in the third innings last season. Sonny Gray, 34 years old, 184 innings last season. Lance Lynn, 36, 183 and two-thirds. Kyle Gibson, also 36, 192 innings. So on one hand, they're getting guys who have shown they can pitch regularly and pitch on occasion deep into games. That's a good thing. On the other hand, when you sign pitchers of those ages, you are inherently taking a risk because they are older and at some point they become a greater injury risk, they become a greater performance risk. All of that is the case, but we will see how it all shakes out for the Cardinals. Again, I still would like to see them add a starter in a trade. I don't think it's going to happen. Now, of the available starting pitchers in free agency, we now have seen two big names come off the board. The first, of course, was Aaron Nola, seven years, $172 million with the Phillies. Now Gray gets a higher average annual value, just slightly, over Aaron Nola, over, of course, a much shorter term, three years, $75 million. Now we've also seen some mid-level guys come off the board. I mentioned Gibson and Lynn. Kenta Maeda, over the weekend, agrees with the Tigers on a two-year, $24 million deal. He will give a youthful rotation of veteran presence. He's their second significant addition of the offseason following Mark Canna. I kind of like what the Tigers are doing here. They have a lot of promise in that organization, a lot of promise in the Major League roster right now. 
but they need some stabilizers. They need some veteran guys, guys who will lead them a little bit. And Maeda is someone who can do that. He's healthy again. He should be okay. Now, the big names, Yamamoto, Snell, Montgomery, etc., they have yet to come off the board. And that leads us to the teams under pressure because most of these teams, not all, want those three guys or some combination or one or any of them, quite frankly. But let's go in reverse order of teams under most pressure. I'm starting with the team under the least of the most here. And that team is actually the Seattle Mariners, one of the few teams in the sport right now that does not have a great need for starting pitching. The Mariners, though, have a need for offense. And they've already traded Eugenio Suarez to the Diamondbacks for a high upside reliever, Carlos Vargas, and a backup catcher, Sebi Zavala. They've also declined to offer a qualifying offer to Teoscar Hernandez. He's a guy who picked a bunch of home runs for them last year, but like Suarez, is a high strikeout type. They are seemingly trying to get away from that. Now, they've gained financial flexibility, but they've lost some power. Let's take a look at this. Where... Eugenio Suarez ranked in the two years he was with the Mariners in home runs. You see Julio Rodriguez had 60, Cal Raleigh had 57, Suarez 53. Now, I know he also led the American League in strikeouts last season with 214, and that is the issue that the Mariners are trying to address. But they're now looking at Luis Urias at third base instead of Suarez. Urias, yeah, he may make more contact, but I don't know that he's going to give you the same production. They need a hitter. And if you remember, Cal Raleigh, who was on that list, he called this team out on the final weekend of the season for their lack of spending. They've created some flexibility by letting Suarez go and letting Hernandez go, or trading Suarez and letting Hernandez go. Now we'll see how they apply it in what is a thin market for position players. All right, next team on this list, oh yes, the Boston Red Sox. Now the Boston Red Sox, they let go of Heim Bloom as their chief baseball officer, hired Craig Breslow to replace him, and they are in the same position as a number of large market teams, in need of starting pitching. The problem is, and you're going to hear this over and over again this offseason, the demand for these pitchers, Snell, Yamamoto, Montgomery, etc., it exceeds the supply. So what are the Red Sox going to do? Well, over the past few years, we've seen them cut back on payroll. Now, the dismissal of Bloom and hiring of Breslow seems to indicate that John Henry and company are ready to spend again. And if you look at their five-year pattern here, you'll see what I'm talking about, and you'll understand that they need to pick it up a little bit. First in payroll in 2019. 2020, the shortened season dropped to fourth, then to eighth in 21, sixth in 22, and 12th out of the top 10. The Red Sox out of the top 10 last season. So obviously now they know what they need to do. And you would think with the change in heads of baseball operations and the general direction that they're going in, that it's time for them to go big again. But Craig Breslow is a new chief baseball officer, hasn't done the job. He's a former major league reliever. We will see if he is ready to close. Continuing on, oh yes, the San Francisco Giants, number two on my list. The Giants, of course, are a team that lacks star power, a team that has failed to acquire star power in recent seasons, and it has become a source of frustration, of course, for their fans. Well, 
they need to be in the mix for virtually every big name on the market, from Otani to Yamamoto to Cody Bellinger to Jung-Hoo Lee to Matt Chapman. I would imagine they'll be on all of those guys. And yes, there is pressure here. There is pressure because the president of baseball operations, while he got an extension to match the same term that they gave the new manager, Bob Melvin, three years, it's time to produce. And this was not only an unsuccessful team last year, this was an uninspired team, a team that was not particularly entertaining. So Zaidi knows he's going to need to do something here. How many of those guys I just named that he can acquire, how many others perhaps he can get in trade, it remains to be seen, but Zaidi knows, everyone in the sport knows, he needs to do something. Finally, number one on my list of teams most under pressure, the New York Yankees. Now, I'm sure most of you watching and listening are aware of Brian Cashman's epic rant at the GM meetings a few weeks back. That was a rant born of frustration over the growing criticism of his recent decision-making. Okay, that's cool. We get that. But the way to stop the noise always in professional sports, college sports too for that matter, is to win. That's how you shut it out. And the way to win if you're the New York Yankees often is to money whip other teams. And like the Red Sox, they kind of have stopped doing that in recent years. Now, they've been more at the top of the payroll rankings, and they're not as egregious in terms of their lack of spending as the Red Sox. But have they spent well? That's another question. So it's pretty obvious where they need to spend. Look at their outfield right now. This is amazing that it's the New York Yankees. Aaron Judge, well, we know who he is. He's pretty good. Esteban Florial, a guy who was DFA'd recently, and Everson Pereira, a prospect who may turn out to be a good player. They are pretty open in their acknowledgement that they need a left fielder and a center fielder, preferably left-handed. And the Yankees, when they've been successful, or at least at times in their recent history under Hal Steinbrenner, they have spent money big in certain off-seasons. I think of the 2008-2009 off-season. They spent $424 million dollars on CC Sabathia, Mark Deschere, and A.J. Burnett. That year, the following season, they won the World Series. In 2013, after the 13th season, they were in kind of a similar circumstance. They were coming off a disappointing season. Joel Sherman of the New York Post has drawn this parallel. And that offseason, too, they spent $438 million combined for Tanaka, Ellsbury, Beltron, and McCann. Now, those deals obviously had mixed results, and a World Series title did not result. We all know the Yankees have not won the series since 2009, that year when they brought in Sabathia, Teixeira, and Burnett. At the same time, they have clear needs. They theoretically know what they need to do. And as their owner, Hal Steinbrenner, should be clued in at this point, he presumably should be ready to spend. Time now for the Inside Dish. This is the part of the show where I go inside a story I've written recently or maybe inside a trend going on in the game. This week, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach. I want to talk about the timing of signings and how these things go down. And what's amazing about baseball or most interesting about baseball is that we never quite know about the timing. I touched on this earlier in the show, and I'll touch on it later, the methodical pace of the offseason. But this year, we have a particularly interesting circumstance, and that, of course, is the free agency of Shohei Otani. When is he going to sign? Will he wait for Yamamoto? Will he go at the winter meetings? How is this all going to work? 
With Otani, you would think it shouldn't take too long. The teams that are interested, they're not going to be a surprise. We know essentially who they are. They know essentially, or it's to some degree, how much money it's going to take. And you would think that those teams are going to want to go quickly. Because if you're committing $500 million to a single player, I'm just throwing that number out there, then you want to know if he's going to take that money because if he doesn't, you're going to move on to other players. Now, I've mentioned this in other shows, and it's kind of interesting to me, this angle. The idea of waiting for Yamamoto to sign if you're Shohei Otani, because if you do that, you're going to put other teams on tilt. So if Yamamoto signs, for instance, with the Giants, then the teams that miss out on Yamamoto, the Red Sox, Yankees, Mets, Dodgers, whoever you want to name, all these big market clubs, you would think at that point they'll be that much more motivated to go get Otani, even though he cannot pitch next season. At the same time, why would Otani need to wait, right, for all the reasons I mentioned earlier? So that dynamic is in play. We'll see how it all plays out. The other aspect of this that is really interesting is the number of free agents, top free agents, who are represented by Scott Boris. And I want to show you the list here of position players and pitchers represented by Boris because it's kind of telling. All right, here are the position players. Really the two top guys, Cody Bellinger and Matt Chapman, both represented by Scott Boris, along with Jung-Hoo Lee, the Korean outfielder who is coming over, who is well thought of as well. And two lesser free agents, but prominent names, J.D. Martinez and Reese Hoskins. Then there are the Boris clients who are pitchers. Some of the best here, too. Two of the best, for sure. Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery, along with Nick Martinez and Frankie Montas. There are other players also represented by Scott Boris, other free agents, but those are the big ones. Now, it leads to the question, okay, how is Boris going to proceed? How is he going to want to stack these guys as he goes forward? I go back to the 2019 winter meetings. Garrett Cole, Anthony Rendon, Steven Strasburg, all represented by Scott Boris. Within three days at the winter meetings, each of those guys signed. They signed for huge dollars, over $800 million combined. So it could be at the winter meetings that Boris goes quickly, that he takes Bellinger off the board, he takes Snell off the board, he takes Montgomery off the board. Could happen. Also could happen that these things drag out. Bryce Harper, most famously, several years back, a Scott Boris client did not sign until February. Boris does not proceed by any clock but his own. And that will be the case again. So if he feels like he's getting the deals he wants, bingo, he'll act. If he does not feel that way, uh, he's not going to care if guys like me are sitting there saying, let's go. It's not going to bother him one bit. So he, in essence, controls parts of each of those markets, large segments of each of those markets. And that is going to be something that we'll be following, obviously, at the winter meetings and beyond. Now, as we get closer to the winter meetings, as I talk about the winter meetings, what I always love about the meetings are the ones where it turns into, well, for lack of a better term, a spending orgy. Now, 2019 was like that. The guys I mentioned, Cole, Rendon, Strasburg, and there were a couple of others like that as well. Again, the best winter meetings are the ones where the spending gets insane. Now, fans might say, I don't like that. Ticket prices are going to go up. Ticket prices are not a reflection of salaries for the hundredth time. They're a reflection of supply and demand. 
the money, when it starts flowing, that's when the action gets really interesting. So 2000, the year 2000, the winter meetings then. A-Rod, 252 million. Manny Ramirez, 160 million. Mike Hampton, 121 million. And who can forget? Darren Dreifert, 55 million. 2010, Jason Worth, 126 million. That was a big deal at the time. In fact, I got a text from a GM moments after the number broke. And the text said, that number is blank crazy. Won't say what the blank is. This is a family show, but you can imagine. Then, also at those same winter meetings, Carl Crawford for 142 million. 2017, I go back to that one too. Albert Pujols, that was a frenzy around his signing at the winter meetings, which took place in Dallas that year, I believe, which was also the place where A-Rod signed. Pujols goes for 254 million to the Angels. CJ Wilson, same winter meeting, 77 and a half million. Again, the best winter meetings are the ones where we get that kind of action. And I'm not saying it's going to happen at this one. I'm not saying it's not. But the timing here is going to be critical. And that's my point. How Boris proceeds, how Otani chooses to handle his free agency, whether he signs quickly or not, whether he waits for Yamamoto or not, these things all have a pace of their own. And remember with Yamamoto, he is already on the clock of sorts. He's the one guy. Actually, there'll be a couple of others, too, who are posted. Imanaga, one of them. Guys who are posted, they have 45 days from the day they are posted until the time that they must sign. So there is a deadline in place for them. Again, I don't expect Otani to wait that long, but he could. And in some ways, it would serve his interest to do that. I just don't know that teams that are interested in him are going to be willing to tell his agent, Nez Bolello of CAA, no, no problem, Nez, take this to January. No, they need answers before then. So we will see how this all plays out next week on the show. Maybe I'll do some of my favorite winter meeting stories that don't necessarily involve spending orgies. But I'm telling you guys, when the money starts to flow, that's when these things start to sizzle. Time now for Dude and Dork of the Week. We had some really cool candidates for Dude of the Week this week. Guys who have done some really neat charitable endeavors in recent days. But I'm going to go with someone who is just such a unique figure in the game's history and continues to be that unique figure in the game's history. I'm talking, of course, about Ichiro. And if you missed it, Brad Lefton wrote a story in The Athletic about Ichiro pitching at age 50. Yes, pitching at age 50 against a select high school girls baseball team in Japan recently. He was the pitcher. He had a group of friends that he assembled. Daisuke Matsuzaka actually was the shortstop in this game. And the reason why I'm naming Ichiro Dude of the Week, well, I could name him simply for why he was doing this. And the reason he was doing this was to promote high school girls baseball in Japan. That's cool enough. But really, the broader thing for me is how much Ichiro loves the game. And I remember writing right around the time he retired whether he was going to be able to enjoy himself or even function without baseball. This guy lived and breathed baseball. And he has done that just fine, of course. And he's done it in kind of a refreshing way. He still plays the game, still is around the Mariners, still takes everything he can and gives everything he can to the game of baseball. So Ichiro Suzuki, dude of the week. Dork of the week, it's kind of an amorphous thing this week. It's not a person in particular. It's a thing. It is actually the Major League Baseball offseason. 
And let's take a look at two tweets from fans that I received this week, two of many, by the way, expressing frustration with the pace of the offseason. Here's one. Oh, hey, new MLB offseason moves finally. And if you can't see this, if you're listening on a podcast, it's a tweet with a person who is asleep. All right, the next tweet, why is the offseason dragging? That one comes from Diane M. She is at Mets South Florida. Why is the offseason dragging? Because it almost always drags. It is the nature of the baseball offseason. And I mentioned this earlier. People ask all the time, why can't MLB be like the NFL, the NHL, the NBA? And the difference is that those three leagues are salary cap leagues. So essentially, teams know the limits on what they can spend. And it's a zero-sum game. They've got to get the players at certain numbers before other teams get them, or they're going to be shut out. In baseball, with no salary cap, there's no limit. There's no set numbers, nothing like a franchise tag in the NFL or a max contract in the NBA. You can just keep going and going and going. So that's the difference. That's why baseball is the way it is. I have thought over the years that one idea to kind of help things along might be to put a trade deadline at the end of the winter meetings, a trade deadline, not a free agent signing deadline. If you do a free agent signing deadline, the union's going to get upset. They're going to say it's not truly a free market. Like that argument or not, that's the reality of the situation. But a trade deadline, that wouldn't upset the free market, so to speak. In fact, it would probably enhance it because it would clear the decks for teams to go out in free agency later. To this point, baseball hasn't done that. But imagine the winter meetings if we had a trade deadline at the end. It would be a total frenzy. It would be amazing. And we could have that kind of atmosphere at the winter meetings, as I mentioned in the inside dish, if the signings start to accelerate. But we've had winter meetings in recent years where it's been really slow, almost a waste of time, because the action came later. Put a trade deadline at the end of this sucker, and you'd have something pretty special. All right, here we go with Grilling Ken. This is the part of the show where you get to ask me questions. I saw some wise-ass kind of questions on Twitter, which luckily my producer Gab did not include here because I would have been kind of mean if I had responded to those questions. But we've got some good ones as well. You guys always have good questions. So let's start today with our first question. Let's see what we got here. This comes from Charlie, Chardude36. What teams could realistically make a push for Juan Soto? Great question and one that is on a lot of people's minds. First of all, I do expect the Padres are going to trade Soto. I believe their financial situation dictates it. I believe their roster situation dictates it as well. The need to replace so much pitching. So which teams are most realistic? You've heard a lot about the Yankees. They certainly are realistic. He'd be great in that stadium. I would suggest the Red Sox should be in as well, though pitching is their priority. The Red Sox could swap out Alex Verdugo, whether in this trade or some other trade, get Soto in there. And Soto in Fenway Park would be fascinating because he would be obviously someone who would make better use of the opposite field than maybe he has at certain times in his career. Not that Juan Soto needs much help hitting. But I had a friend of mine last night suggest that the wall at Fenway could be the great wall of Soto if he went there. Another team, and here's a team that obviously makes a lot of sense and has the pitching to trade, but I don't know if they would do it. That's the Seattle Mariners. 
And the reason I don't know that they would do it is because Juan Soto is going to be $30 million plus for one season. And then you possibly lose him as a free agent. You're most likely not going to extend him. He's a Scott Boris client. He's going to want to hit the open market, get as much money as he can. Would the Mariners be willing to do that for one year? I'm sort of skeptical, but he would be a perfect fit. All right, the next question here, let's see what we've got. It comes from JSOP. Jay asks, the Cubs have a logjam of outfield prospects. Will they trade a few to get a big bat or number one starter? Good question, Jay. And it's a good question for a couple of reasons. One, because the Cubs, after hiring Craig Council as manager, clearly are going to want to take the next step. You don't hire Council as your manager to just accelerate a rebuilding process. No, you want to win at this point. Also a good question, because you've identified an area of strength for the Cubs at a time when the market for position players in general is thin. So if the Cubs want to trade one of their outfield prospects, and we're talking about Pete Crow Armstrong, Owen Casey, Kevin Alcantara, Kevin came over in the Rizzo trade, it's a good time. And it's a good time to put one of those guys, I would say, as a strong piece in a package to maybe get something else you want. A top starter would be obviously one idea, you got to replace Stroman, and you've got to replace Bellinger. So a position player, a big-time outfielder, that would be great too. I don't know if they're going to do that, but I like the way you're thinking. All right, the final question. I believe this one involves, oh yes, the San Francisco Giants. We touched on them earlier, but we'll hit them again. Thoughts on the San Francisco Giants. This comes from Sports Updates. Who are they most likely to sign? Are they trying to sign multiple top free agents or just one? Well, Predicting any team and who they're going to sign is always difficult. If I would have told you at the start of the offseason, my prediction for the Cardinals is Kyle Gibson, Lance Lynn, and Sonny Gray, you probably would have said, that's not going to happen. But it did happen. So with the Giants, I mentioned several names earlier. Matt Chapman, Jung-Hoo Lee, Cody Bellinger, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, all of the players that we've talked about, Blake Snell could be another one, all the big names, Otani number one on the list. How many of them will they get? I don't know. I expect, though, that they're going to want to add at least two big pieces. And when I say big, I mean two of the names that I just mentioned. Now, what combination, how they can do this, who they can get, that remains to be seen. The thing about free agency that everyone needs to understand is that it's not just one team's desires. It's one team's desires against the desires of 29 other teams. Now, not all of them are spenders, of course, but it's a competition. And because it's a competition, because teams are often unpredictable in the way they behave, you just cannot forecast accurately how this is going to go down. Looking ahead, I'm expecting a busy week of activity. I wouldn't say it's going to be completely hectic, but maybe we'll get some trades as we lead into the winter meetings, which begin a week from today, Monday, in Nashville. But first, I want to talk about something else that is pretty important to me. Coming up this Saturday is the Pedro Gomez Foundation Golf Tournament and Auction at the Whirlwind Golf Club in Chandler, Arizona. You get a lot of goodies for playing in the golf tournament, and the auction items include, get this, a four-night stay in a luxury condo in Telluride, Colorado. That's not bad. Four box seats for a game at Fenway. Four tickets to a Yankee game. And this cool Miami package. Miami, of course, is was Pedro's hometown. In this package, two Marlins tickets, batting practice passes, and four Miami Heat tickets. 
The bidding is open now for these items and a lot more. All right, I want to thank everyone for their questions for Grilling Ken. I want to thank everyone for watching, for listening. You know where to find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify. Subscribe to us, like us. We'll talk to you next week. Enjoy the continuing pace of the offseason. Download the BetMGM Sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Use the bonus code FOUL. Sign up and deposit at least 10 bucks into your BetMGM Sportsbook account. And you place your first wager and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if that bet loses. If it loses, your bonus bets will be available once your wager is settled. Gambling problem or concern, call 1-800-GAMBLER.